10 of your bulletin, all right? Let me pray for us as we get ready to hear God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your word. We thank you that this book is not dead and cold, but it is alive and active. And we thank you that your word has a way of dividing the thoughts and the intents of men. Sharp enough to separate the marrow from the bone. And we pray this morning that you would make your word especially sharp. Oh Lord, to sort of cut between what's good and what's right. From what's, from what's bad and what's wrong in our lives. In our thinking, in our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us by your word. We, we live by your word. And so, Lord, speak to us. Feed us, we pray, from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As we said before in the call to worship, God in the Bible often uses pictures to give us a sense of what it's like to be related to him. And one of those pictures that he uses throughout the Bible is the picture of marriage. That God created marriage in Genesis chapter 2, not just so, Adam would have a wife and the problem of man being alone and it not being good would be solved. But God, as he always does, has even bigger purposes in mind when he created marriage. And so when you come to the New Testament in a place like Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 32, the Bible tells us there that actually marriage is a mystery, that it was a kind of secret that was revealed later when Christ came. And the secret was this. That in creating marriage, God was giving us a moving picture of what it was like to be related to him. That marriage is really a picture of the church's relationship with her Lord, Jesus Christ. In our text this morning, we come to another one of those passages where, where Christ takes marriage as a symbol to teach us what it's like to be related to God what it's like to be ready for God when he comes, what it's like to enter into God's kingdom when his kingdom comes in full. It's a parable. A parable is a, is a story, a vivid story, usually colorful, sometimes funny, that, that really has one major point. The whole of the parable isn't to get lost in the details, though they, they help us. The point of the parable is to push us into one major truth. Here's the major truth. Jesus is coming again, and it will surprise many people who are not ready for his kingdom. So be ready. So be ready. Jesus is coming again, and his, his coming will surprise many people. So we had better be ready. Look with me in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. 
Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, we might divide this little passage of Scripture into sort of three sections. The first section is just basically the introduction. That's there in verse 1, right? Where Jesus introduces the kingdom of heaven. The second section is the bulk of the story, verses 2 to 12 there, the body of the story, where he gives us this comparison, what the coming of the kingdom of heaven will be like. And then finally, verse 13 is the, is the conclusion, the main point, the application that Jesus wants to give us. What, what must we do to enter the kingdom of heaven when it comes? And those are the three questions I want us to consider in this sermon. What is the kingdom of heaven? Verse 1, what is the kingdom of heaven like? Verses 2 to 12, and how will we enter or what must we do to enter the kingdom when it comes? Verse 13. So let's start with that first point there. What is the kingdom of heaven? You see that there again in verse 1. It begins, the kingdom of heaven. Now in some ways, that's been the, the theme since Matthew chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, you can look back at the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, uh, where the disciples come and they want to know what will be the sign of his coming. They ask there, tell us, when will these things be? The coming of the end of the world. And what will be the sign of your coming of the close of the age? So everything in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25 in these two chapters have really been answering that question. And in a real sense, all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, are focused on this theme, this idea of the kingdom of heaven. And with that much attention in the Bible on this theme, we want to be clear, if we can, as to what it is we're talking about. And the Bible defines the kingdom of heaven in three ways. Number one, the kingdom of heaven is a person. Number two, the kingdom of heaven is a rule and a realm. It's a, it's a rule and it's an area where that rule is expressed. And number three, the kingdom of heaven is both present and future. It's both present and and future. So let's take those apart real quick. The kingdom of heaven is a person. All the gospels begin with an introduction of Jesus Christ. You know that? And do you remember how Christ is introduced in the beginning of most of the gospels? What's the first thing we hear preached by John the Baptist and others? What do they say? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is at hand means it has arrived and they're calling people to repent from their old way of life outside of this kingdom and to turn and to ready themselves to enter into this kingdom because the kingdom has arrived. How do they know that the kingdom has arrived? Well, it's because the king had arrived. Christ had come onto the scene and wherever you have the king, there you have his kingdom represented. 
And so John the Baptist preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. All the disciples in their early messages preached this very same message. Everywhere Jesus goes, the kingdom goes along with him. And he stepped on the scene. And he is the embodiment of all the glory and all the promises of that kingdom that the Bible speaks of. Well, the kingdom is a person, but the kingdom is also a rule and a realm. In the days of Jesus' life on earth, people were confused about the kingdom of God. They knew from the Old Testament that a leader would come from God who would establish God's kingdom and establish Israel once again. And so they began to look for a political leader. And in the days of Jesus, when Jewish people were under Roman occupation, they were looking for a leader who would free them from Roman oppression and reestablish God's kingdom and would be God's ruler in Israel on the earth. But Jesus most often spoke of the kingdom not as a realm, not as a, a piece of land, a territory somewhere where he had his kingdom and his subjects lived. He most often spoke of God's kingdom as a rule. As, as wherever God's control went out in the world. So, so one of the things that the Bible teaches us is to be in God's kingdom is to be under God's rule, is to be under his lordship, is to be under his leadership. And wherever people are submitted to Christ as the king, there you have an expression of Christ's rule and there you have an expression of his kingdom. And so Jesus could say things like this in Luke chapter 17, verse 21, that the kingdom is among you, or you may have a translation that says in you, because they have by the gospel come under the rule of Christ. Or Paul could write in Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he could say something like this, that God has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That wherever people have been transferred from the darkness of sin and the rule of sin and have now been transferred under the rule of Christ into the kingdom of God's beloved son, there you have under that rule an expression of his kingdom. So the kingdom is a person, and the kingdom is a rule, and a realm, but now the kingdom of heaven is interesting. It's already and not yet. It has come, but it's not yet fully here. It began when Christ came into the world. He initiated the, the kingdom of God through his, through his life and ministry, his death and resurrection, through the rule and the preaching of the gospel, but it's not yet fully here. We don't yet see it in its complete manifestation. There's a future aspect to it. And so that future aspect and the fullness of the kingdom comes when Jesus returns. He promised that he would come again, that he would gather his church unto himself, that he would judge the world in righteousness, and that he would cast out those who were not his, and he would renew the entire creation and reestablish a perfect kingdom here. That's yet to come. So the Old Testament prophets tell us of this, when many will come from east and west and they will eat together in the kingdom with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's an Old Testament way of anticipating this coming final kingdom. 
Or we read, for example, in uh, Matthew 26, 29, at the Last Supper. You remember what Jesus says to them as he gives them that supper, the, the bread which represents his body and the wine which represents his blood? He says, I will not eat and drink of this with you until what? Until I do it again with you in my Father's kingdom. Pointing to the second coming. Or do you remember... Do you remember how the Lord gives his disciples a promise in John chapter 14, where he says, let not your hearts be troubled. You remember that? You that believe in God, believe also in me. And he says, basically, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are what? Many mansions. Amen. And he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you into that mansion, into that kingdom. One day, Christ will come, we'll split the sky, we'll see him in his glory with our, with our very eyes, and his very coming will be in so much glory that this creation, the Bible tells us, will be melted away as if in fervent heat, and Christ will give a shout, and the, and the dead in Christ will rise and will be gathered together with him in the air. And, and when we gather together with him, we'll go to be with him forever in his kingdom. And so the kingdom in that sense is yet future. If we're Christians, we're already in it, and it's already in us, and it's coming, and we're being drawn to it. Is this what Jesus is talking about when he comes to this parable in Matthew 25, verse 1? We might summarize it all this way. The, The kingdom of heaven comes to us in Jesus Christ. The kingdom grows in us through the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And the kingdom will be with us when Jesus returns. It's this very idea that Jesus refers to here in verse 1 of Matthew 25. And then we we come into the body of this parable now. And this is where we ask the second question. What is the kingdom of heaven like? Jesus tells us in verse 1. Kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Notice there, Jesus speaks in the future tense, right? He's talking about that kingdom when it comes in its full. It will be like this. He says, this is what the kingdom, this is what you can expect when it comes. So the Lord looks out over time, he anticipates the coming of that kingdom, and he gives them a, a word picture that's meant to be applied in their lives in that day and in our lives in this day. When Jesus refers to the bridegroom, he basically takes and puts them in a wedding scene. Not unlike today. In ancient Israel, a a wedding had actually several parts. It was a real process. The first step in the process is what's called the betrothal, or what we call engagement. It's stronger than our engagement. That's where a a man's father and family would go over to the bride's family's house and sit down with the bride, and they would negotiate the marriage. What what y'all think? These two kids need to get married to what? And, and the bride's father or the groom's father would, would have to sort of offer to the bride's father what we call a, a dowry or a bride price. He would have to compensate that family for the loss of their daughter. And in that compensation would also be providing a kind of nest egg for the daughter should things go wrong. They would negotiate that, and when that was settled and agreed to, then you had a betrothal. And in the law of ancient Israel, that betrothal was just like marriage. In order to get out of it, you actually had to get a divorce. Now, they weren't actually married yet. They weren't living together. They weren't a husband and wife, but they were contracted to be so. And that began the second phase. The second phase we might call preparation. The young man goes back to his father's house. The the bride-to-be remains in her mother's house, and they both have to prepare themselves and ready themselves for the wedding. 
The young woman normally has some attendants like these 10 virgins in this parable who would help her maybe sew a wardrobe of clothes or help her do other things to, to sort of get ready. When I was a little boy and watching my sisters wanting to be married, they used to have what was called a hope chest. Anybody remember those? This hope chest, and they would this little chest that they would keep at the foot of their bed, and they would put certain things in the hope chest in preparation for that day of marriage. And meanwhile, the, the young man, the, the groom-to-be, would be back in his father's house, and he had to prepare too. He had to prepare a home for her, usually somewhere on the parcel of land that his father owned. He had to prepare that home. He had to prepare uh, to provide for her and all those good things. And here's the thing about the preparation. The preparation would not be ended until the father of the groom said he was ready. Yeah, that's good, ain't it? It wasn't until dad looked at son and said, I think you're ready, that son could go back and get his bride. And that actually began the third phase of the wedding, the wedding feast itself, which normally lasted about seven days. There'd be a whole parade that goes from the groom's house, going out in front of the groom, yelling basically, here comes the broom, not the bride, we got it backwards. Here comes the groom. And they would be making their way to the bride's house. And, and when that shout, here comes the groom, goes up, the bride and her party are supposed to get themselves ready. They come to the bride's house, and at the bride's house would be seven days of feasting. Now, that's a wedding. We're going to have our little reception downstairs later, but, you know, we're going to make some changes around here, ARC. We got we to step it up, right? There'd be seven days of feasting during which the, the wedding would take place. Uh, the, the groom would take his bride back to his home. They would consummate the wedding. Then you would have an actual marriage. This is the background to what Jesus is doing with this parable. Uh, these ten virgins are attendants to the bride. They're somewhere around the bride's house. Their job is to be ready so that when the groom comes, they can announce his arrival and the wedding party can begin. Now notice something. Not only is the kingdom like a wedding, but as Jesus continues to tell the story, the kingdom is a little bit like a sleepover. The ten virgins are supposed to keep watch, but notice in verse 2. Verse 2 tells us the virgins are not all alike. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Now here's a tip. If God is writing about you in the Bible, you don't want to be included in the foolish category, right? So five of them were foolish and five were wise. Well, how do we know the difference? Verses 3 and 4 tell us, don't they? For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. Now how that going to work? You got there, you got your little lamp, you got your little wick. You maybe got a little oil to start the night, but if the groom don't come right away, how you going to burn that lantern? You ain't got no oil. That's foolish, right? Notice the wise. The wise, they took not only their lamp and whatever oil was already in the lamp, but they also took flasks, plural, of oil with their lamps. They're ready if something happens. Something don't go right. They're ready. They got light. They got their lamps, right? And that's the contrast between these folks. They go out, they are expecting the groom. But notice now that these, these virgins, they symbolize people who are waiting for the coming of the kingdom of God and the king. And here's the thing, beloved. Do you know there's a foolish way to wait for God? There's a foolish and a wise way to, work, to, to wait for God. The foolish virgins teach us that the foolish way to wait for God's kingdom is to start out but not actually be prepared to finish. The wise virgins 
The wise way to wait for the kingdom is to anticipate that there might be some costs and to prepare and to be ready to pay the cost. The kingdom is like a sleepover where some have enough and some don't. But notice the third thing, the kingdom, and we ask, what is it like? The kingdom is like real life too. Notice the real life that takes place in here. Verse five, the bridegroom was delayed. You see, Sean, the man is late in the Bible too. Uh, We don't know what the delay is. It's unexpected. And it hints at the fact that Christ's own coming will not happen on somebody else's schedule. You don't get to put on a day and time in your calendar, okay, Jesus, you can come now. And God hadn't told us when this is going to happen. It's going to happen at a time we don't expect. And that's real life, beloved. You can't schedule things like deaths and funerals. You can't schedule car accidents. If you do, you ought to go to prison. You can't can't schedule the hard and most important things in life, beloved. And so it is with Christ's coming. Notice something else about this real life situation. In verse 5, they all became drowsy and slept. They got tired. The delay lasted longer than their natural strength. How many of us have ever had to go through some things that lasted longer than our strength, we thought? How many of us have ever had to face some situations waiting on God and God seemed to be taking his time? Uh, We like those who were waiting on Christ to get there when Lazarus was sick and he got there and Lazarus died and they met him out there and said, Lord, you late. He already died. He's stinking in the grave. Jesus says, no, this has happened so that you might see the glory of God. He calls Lazarus right up out the grave, didn't he? He don't come, as the songwriter says, when you want him, but he's always on time. He's always on time. And so they get drowsy. They get tired. And the, and the Christian life is like that, beloved. You, you're going to get tired in the Christian life. You're going to get drowsy in the Christian life. You're going to meet some situations in the Christian life where your resources don't seem to match God's calling upon your life. You may as well know that because despite what some people teach you about Christianity being your best life now, that's not to be understood as being your easy life now. For Christ said things like this, all those who follow me shall suffer persecution. He told disciples, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. There's going to be a cost to following Christ and we had better count it so that we might be ready when the kingdom comes. The third thing here in terms of this real life situation, notice the surprise. It comes in verse six. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. It would be midnight, wouldn't it? They sound asleep. They've maybe been burning their lamps for a while and have fallen asleep to that lamp light. And then comes the announcement. He's here. He's here. Now, their entire job was to meet him when they they had one job. Meet him when he comes. They're sleeping on the job. The return of the bridegroom catches them by surprise. Beloved, that's what it's going to be like for many when Jesus returns and brings the kingdom in full. 
His return will be unexpected and surprising. It can happen at any moment. And this is a point that Jesus has been making in both of these chapters, Matthew 24 and 25. You have a Bible, feel free to look back with me or to write this verse down if you don't have a Bible. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36. The Lord says there, you may know these words, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. What does that sound like? It sounds like that marriage preparation, doesn't it? And not surprisingly, in the next verse, Jesus starts talking about marriage. As were the days of Noah, so will be, coming, will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The funny thing about this wedding is that some people will be at the wedding waiting on the bridegroom. Some people will be at the wedding drinking themselves to sleep. Eating and drinking and celebrating and having their spiritual senses dulled to what the wedding is really about. About the coming of the bridegroom and the coming of the kingdom, which will come in an instant when we do not expect it and cannot schedule it. And when the kingdom come, comes, it's going to have some real life consequences. Look again at verses 7 through 9 of Matthew 25. In verse 7, notice all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. They're ready to, to, to light their lamps and to keep them burning. And, and it's in that moment that the, the foolish virgins recognize something, don't they? Uh-oh, we ain't got enough oil. So verse 8, notice they ask the wise virgins for some of their oil so they can keep their lamps burning. Verse 9, I love the way the wise virgins respond to them. They tell them, foolish virgins, look, no, 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 we ain't got enough for us and you. You you need to go to the store and buy your own. I'm going to be dating myself a little bit. Reminds me of those old late night uh, commercials about those R&B soul albums. The Shy Lights and the Delphonics. Bet you my golly, wow. You know, <laughs> brother puts that album on and that dead party gets, is, is lit. It gets turned up, don't it? Right? And at the, at the end of that commercial, you remember what happens. One of the brothers say, man, this is a great album. Let me borrow. You remember what the brother says? He grabs the album and says, no, my brother. You got to buy your own, right? <laughs> and the five wise virgins like that. They like, let me get some of your own. They're like, no, my sister, you got to buy your own. And, and they women, so you know they said it with an attitude. They smacked their lips first. No, look, uh-uh. <laughs> you got to get your own. Because you know what they're thinking. You had the same amount of time we had. You had the same job we had. You, you knew what you needed like we knew what we needed. And you didn't do what you were supposed to do. See, beloved, some help ain't help to people who ain't helping themselves, you understand? And so they no, no, no. We're not going to pay the cost of missing the bridegroom tending to you. We've been on our post. We've been on our watch. We've been ready for the coming of the bridegroom. He's coming now. Now you got to take care of yourself. You got to get your own. Verses 10 and 12 report the real life consequences, don't they? And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, 
I do not know you. Put that in southeast. He came to the door. He's like, who that is? And they out there knocking. We the five foolish virgins. I don't know. You get away from my house. And this is alarming. It's really quite striking. Because apparently they think they know him. Apparently they think they know him. And at the mere presentation of themselves at the door, they think they're coming in. Oh, beloved, when the Lord closes the door to the kingdom and you're on the outside, you are on the outside. Reminds me of the story of this drunkard in England about 100 years ago. He's on one of his binges. He's out by the famous river, the Thames River. And at the time, one of the world's greatest preachers walks by, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he walks by in a drunk, and his drunk calls out, Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, do you remember me? I'm, I'm one of your disciples. And Charles Spurgeon, without missing a beat, looked at him and said, well, you must be one of mine because you sure ain't one of Christ. And Jesus himself speaks this way in the gospel. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, the Lord was making this very point. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to you these words I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness beloved the main thing here is not that someone claims that they know Christ but whether Christ knows them whether Christ owns them whether Christ claims them whether Christ attaches his name to them as his very own and Christ knows all those who are his and his sheep know his voice and they will not be lost But we cannot wait for the coming of Christ lackadaisical and foolish and assuming and presuming that we good when we're not living the way this parable calls us to live. We're living foolish rather than wise. There are going to be a lot of people who will claim great things and claiming that they know the Lord. But the critical thing is, does the Lord know you? Are you known by the Lord? To put it another way, just a couple of applications here, beloved. We can't make it into the kingdom of heaven using somebody else's oil. Grandma's faith won't get you to heaven. Mom and dad's faith won't get you into the kingdom of God. Having a son or daughter who is serious about Jesus, that's no credit to you. You ain't going to get no points for that in going into the kingdom of heaven. You and I have to be ready for ourselves. You and I have to be waiting on his coming. You and I have to have oil in our own lamps and be looking and ready for the bridegroom when he comes. Now, we can sleep on this if we want to, but when the Lord closes the door, as we said before, ain't enough knocking in the world that will get us in. And the question comes, are you ready? 
right now, are you the foolish virgin or the wise virgin? Right now, are you even expecting the return of the king and the coming of the kingdom? Are you living every day just like the previous day, seeking your own will and your own desires? Are you ready? Which brings us to our third question. What must we do then to enter the kingdom of heaven? How is it that we find ourselves among the wise rather than among the foolish? Verse 13 gives us the punchline. Remember, a parable has one main application. And here Jesus gives us that one main point he wanted to make by telling this story. Here it is in Jesus' words. Watch therefore... For you know neither the day nor the hour. To be ready when Jesus comes, to be ready for the kingdom when it comes, we have to remain on our watch. Again, the Lord has said this in a couple of different ways already in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. There he says, therefore, stay awake for you do not know when the day your Lord is coming. Matthew 24, verse 44, there, you, there you, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And you see how he just keeps emphasizing that this is coming when you're not expecting. This is coming when you're not expecting. This is coming sooner than you expect or it's coming later than you expect. So the only conclusion is, is to always be ready. The only people who will enter the kingdom of heaven are those who are looking for it, watching, prepared for it, be ready and enduring, stay awake until it comes. And again, the reason is, is we don't know when it's coming. I don't know how many of you remember after 9-11, country was in war, declared war, and effectively uh, issued a new sort of code system to alert the public as to any, any terrorist threat. Remember that? You got like orange level and red level and different levels. You see it at the airports. You see it at the train stations. I remember for a while, um, because the country was, was rightly concerned and, and rightly panicked and, and trying to be watchful, for a while the, the alert levels were always pretty high. They're always like orange, right? You know? And, uh, and in one, in one level, you, you think, okay, that's good because we want to be watchful. But I remember listening to a news story talking about this system and how useful it would be. And, and one of the commentators on the news story made this point. He says, the problem with it is this, is you cannot remain on high alert all the time. You just you can't do it, right? What, what happens is you, you inevitably, we inevitably sort of begin to sort of get used to orange level or get used to a red threat level, and then it doesn't feel like a threat level to us anymore. And, and the systems, the, 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 the senses begin to dull, and the thing doesn't have its desired effect, right? And so you come over to this text, and you hear Jesus say, watch. And he means keep on watching. And he means always be on your post and always be ready. And the question is how, is, how is that possible? Because we are like all the other 10 virgins who just a few verses earlier fell asleep at night when we got tired, right? And we get tired spiritually. We get distracted spiritually. We get, we get misdirected spiritually. And, and yet we have this call upon our lives to continually watch. And the question is, well, how do we do this? What's in this watching? Let me give you three things and then three more things. I'm sneaking three other things in as a, as a preacher, right? 
So Peter, that's six. Six things to close, right? (laughs) Here we go. What does this watching look like? What does it entail? Well, this watching implies faith, doesn't it? You don't watch for things you don't believe are coming. Right? Just a few verses earlier in chapter 25, Jesus used another parable. He says, hey, if a man knew when the thief was going to break in his house, he would set watch and wait for him when the thief breaks into his house, right? But, but we don't know, and so we go on uns- unsuspecting, and, and the thief shows up, and, and he burglarizes the home. That's what makes him an effective thief, coming when we don't expect it. And so we have to be, we have to be watchful, but, but that being watchful implies, requires believing, faith, a confidence, assuredness that Christ is the king and Christ is coming with his kingdom. That just as he came into the world the first time and sacrificed himself for our sins and was raised from the grave and promised to go and prepare a place for us to come back, that promise we take to the bank and we trust in this Christ and we trust in his coming. So being watchful means having this continuing faith in Christ. But the second thing that watch implies is focus. It implies focus. It means that we are looking for a particular thing. We are looking for a particular person. And that watching requires us to be alert to that that thing and that that person when it happens and when they come. Uh, We don't want to be like uh, some man, I won't name him, probably half of us, in the room, got the remote in his hand, television's playing. Wife comes into the room, she sees him watching TV with his head kind of down like this. She takes the remote and switches the channel. He's like, wait, 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 wait a minute, I was watching that, I was watching that, right? Then how it always wake up, I was watching that, I was watching that. No, brother, you was testing your eyelids for cracks, man. You, you, you were out, it was watching you, you weren't watching it, you lost focus, you, you were drowsy and sleep, right? That's not the kind of watching or focus that's implied. We want to be the kind of people who keep before ourselves, who remind ourselves, who remember that our king is coming and he's coming soon. And we preach to ourselves this coming of Christ and the coming of heaven, which the Bible describes in Titus chapter 2 as our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When's the last time you reminded yourself that Christ is coming? And to be looking for him. It was the last time we reminded ourselves that our king could come any moment. We should be ready, crying out to the world about his coming. Here's the third thing. Faith, focus, following. Following. To watch for Christ involves following Christ. There is no true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that does not also include genuine obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus says these things in in the gospel. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? We we don't want to be like that drunkard in England, you know, laying down in the gutter, you know, torn up by alcohol, crying out, you know, I'm a disciple, I'm a disciple, and Christ comes and looks at us and says, well, you must be Mr. Spurgeon's disciple because I don't know you. My people don't live that way. That's not how you have learned Christ if you have learned him. We want to be those who each day put on Christ, who robe ourselves in Christ and remind ourselves of Christ calling upon our lives and in faith and focus then follow this same Christ as our Lord. We need faith if we're going to watch. We need focus if we're going to watch. 
And we need to follow Christ if we're going to watch. Now I want to tell you the same three things a little bit differently, this time from the Bible. First John chapter 5, John is writing that whole letter to help people understand whether or not they're truly Christians, whether or not they are really ready for the kingdom when the kingdom comes. And he's going to tell these same three things that I gave you in those three F's in in different words. And I want to root this for you in the Bible. And we'll close on this. And so John says that we are ready and watching if we have a continuing faith. First John chapter five, verse one. Everyone who believes... You see the tense there, believes, and not just they prayed some prayer at some point or they made some confession at some point, but they made that prayer or that confession and they continue in that faith down to this time. Everyone who believes, notice that Jesus is the Christ, that is, he is the appointed Savior and Son of God, has been born of God. Now notice the, 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 the sort of phrase there, has been born of God. That's in the past tense. Right? So what comes first in this sentence is the new birth. You were born again by a sovereign work of God's Spirit. And in that new birth, you were given this gift of repentance and faith. And everyone born of God believes in Christ. Right? And so this is how you know or you begin to know whether or not Christ knows you. Uh, You sort of look at your faith and you say, where did this faith come from? Well, if it's genuine faith, you didn't make it up. If it's genuine faith, God gave it to you. He gave it to you when he called you through the gospel from death into life. He made you a new creation, the Bible says. And in making you a new creation, he also adopted you as his son or his daughter. And in that very act of graciously raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives us this gift of faith. Right? So all those who are watching are those who are continuing to believe that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, who gave himself for us and who recognize that that faith flows up out of God having made us alive again in Christ. You with me? Here's the second thing. This watching is not only a continuing faith, but this watching also includes a genuine love and obedience. So let's look at, continue to read 1 John 5 there. It says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. See, John's just trying to help us know whether or not we really know Jesus. And he says, you know you know Jesus, and you are known by Jesus if you love God, and if you love other Christians, and if you love to obey God's word. That's the evidence. That's the subjective fruit that a new birth produces. You didn't used to love God. I didn't used to love God. You didn't used to love Christians. You, you, you probably still sit around and talk about Christians are hypocrites. They, you know, all this stuff. And the preacher just wants your money. And, and, and the church folks don't never do nothing for the community. You do all that from your couch, not helping the community yourself. Right? Right? Come on, real talk. Right? And, and, and so we didn't love God. We didn't love his people. We didn't love his word. We, we, you know, we, I swear on the Bible, we want somebody to believe us, but we didn't actually open it and, and read it and do anything in it. 
But then you heard the gospel. You heard this message about Jesus's crucifixion on the cross. And somebody told you that was for you. He died in your place, that your actual sins were credited or counted to him. And he removed your guilt and removed your shame. And by his sacrifice, God has forgiven you. And somebody told you, turn to this Jesus. He is the son of God. Believe in him and follow him and you will have eternal life and you will know God's love. And surprising maybe to you, you believed. You believed. And you began to follow Jesus and you began to believe his word. And this book, which was once dead, is now alive to you and you treasure it and and you don't obey it perfectly. None of us do, but that's your desire. And it's a new desire and you want to follow Jesus. And all of a sudden you find yourself now switching company. You ain't hanging with who you used to hang with. You're now hanging with Christians and you enjoy their fellowship and the things that used to give you joy. They don't give you joy anymore. And now a strange thing, singing old hymns and reading an old book and gathering with people to pray, that gives you life. And you love it. You love God. You love his people. You love to obey his word. That's how you're known by God. And you truly know him. And then we see a third thing here. This watching is not only a continuing faith, And a genuine love and obedience to God. But this watching is also an overcoming of the world. It is persevering in faith and having victory over the world. Notice in verses 4 and 5 of 1 John 5. For everyone who has been born of God. That's the the supposition, right? That's the the assumption. If you've been born again by God, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Not a single one doesn't. Everyone does. Everyone who's been born of God and has faith in Christ and who loves God and loves his people and loves his word, the the consequence of that is victory. It's overcoming. They overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Even our victory is rooted in this gift of faith, which God gives us when he makes us new in Christ. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. That's what it is to watch, to believe that Jesus is the son of God who died for your sins and continue in that belief to follow Jesus as your Lord and to obey him through his word and to love him and to love his church. And no matter what comes from the world, what kind of suffering, what kind of temptation, what kind of distraction to choose Christ over the world to overcome the world by your faith in the Son of God and to live for Him and not yourself or anyone else, but to live for Christ. This is what it is to watch. And when Christ comes and finds us watching, we get to go to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We enter into that that home. We sit at the table with Christ. We drink together with him the wine of the kingdom. We eat the feast that is spread before the Father. We look into his glorious face. And in his face, we see love. And in his face, we see glory. And in his face, we see what we were made for. To find satisfaction and delight in the very one who made us. And in his face... We recognize it was foolish 
to ever have lived apart from him. This is the hope of every Christian. And this is the hope we want you to have this morning. If you've come and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure you're a Christian, or you want to know more about what it means to really be a Christian, maybe you've seen enough people play church, maybe you're tired of playing church, and you want to know what it is to really know Christ. And more than that, you want the confidence that comes from knowing that you are known by Christ. This is why we exist as a church, to help people to enter into this love of God and live forever with Him. Uh, We're going to have the wedding. The wedding is really not about Sean and Rick. I mean, Rick looks handsome in his tux. Sean looks beautiful in her dress. But what you're going to be seeing modeled here is the union of Christ with those who believe in Him. We want you to have a part of that marriage. And we want you to join us in waiting for the return of the bridegroom of Christ. So at the reception, if you've got questions, we hope to have answers. If you want to talk more about what this means, we would like nothing more than to do that. To tell you of God's love. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for Jesus, the Savior of our soul, the one whom you sent in the world to ransom us from our sins, the one who died on Calvary's cross, taking our place in judgment, the one who rose from the grave three days later for our justification, the one whom the Bible tells us is coming again to gather us as his bride and to take us to his father's house where there are many mansions, to live together forever in the fellowship of his love. We thank you for this, Jesus. And we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to remain watchful until he comes. Give us a watchful spirit. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to endure by faith until we receive the reward of our faith, until we lay our eyes upon our Savior King. Do this, O Lord, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.